This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Today we have a fascinating guest from Finland. Real Fiction airs on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia, and iTunes, SoundCloud, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome. On Real Fiction, I speak with journalists, novelists, poets, and scholars about the real and imaginary forces that fuel stories and reportage. I'll be back in a moment with author Christina Sandu. My guest today is Christina Sandu, an award-winning writer from Finland. Her new work of fiction, The Union of Synchronized Swimmers, is her first book to be published in English and will be released in the United States this summer. As the Olympics are scheduled to take place in Tokyo, this is the once-in-every-four-year opportunity that viewers will watch certain sporting events like synchronized swimming competitions. Christina Sandu's new novella is about a group of synchronized swimmers who work in a cigarette factory in an unnamed stateless place in the Eastern Bloc behind the so-called Iron Curtain. The precise setting is left unknown by design. Uh, The young women defect to other countries during a swimming competition. Joining me from Helsinki, Finland, to discuss my favorite read of the summer is Christina Sandu. Christina, welcome to Real Fiction. Thank you for having me. There is a short statement, Christina, before the book begins, and it says this, crane, porpoise, flamingo, dolphin, beings that live in or by the water, These are also the names for positions in synchronized swimming performed seemingly effortlessly on the threshold between floating and sinking. It's kind of a wonderful teaser for the lives we're about to enter in the story that you've created. And we learn about a group of women who work in a cigarette factory and they barter those cigarettes um, kind of stolen from the job to pay for swimsuits and train for synchronized swimming competition. What in the world inspired this story? What can you tell us? Um, Well, first of all, I like the idea of using synchronized swimming in fiction. I remember a girl from school who was part of a synchronized swimming team, and sometimes, sometimes she showed us what kind of movements they would do. And I remember how she was upside down in the pool like straight above the first surface. And um, from far, it looked so easy and light. But when I saw her from close, um, I noticed her hands were doing these quick, exhaustive movements underwater so she wouldn't sink. And this image then came back to me a few years ago when I was working on this book and I had written some short stories about women who were trying to adapt into a new country. And I had decided to try to bring these stories together with the idea of athletes who, who defect 
And I knew that they would do what that girl from my school did, those um, strange movements in water. The other element to this book is that um, we don't know exactly where it takes place. And when I was reading your book, I was reminded of a line in a poem that I read recently. And that line was, geography is not fate, but fatal. A person's circumstances are so specific and sometimes cruel depending on um, where one grows up and the opportunities that are associated with a place. And it's so vivid in these stories. Um, So what happens is the characters are kind of plotting escape from their homeland. And you know, it may have been very difficult for these girls to to leave this place had it not been for a world-class accomplishment in a sport. And so we don't know where the story is set. It's, it's as you write, on a slice of land that doesn't officially belong to a country. Uh, but we do know that there are Lenin statues and some there's some Russian vocabulary mm-hmm. slipped into the, the stories. Um, can you share something about why you chose to set this story in, as you call it, a stateless place? Yes. So I've, I've always been sensitive to, to stories of, of departure and immigration. Um, maybe this curiosity comes from the fact that my father migrated to Finland from communist Romania. Um, and I've heard or grown up with anecdotes and stories about communist times and people escaping from Romania, but also Hungary, East Germany, and so on. But there are also lands that are not recognized as, state, as states uh, still to this date. And these are less represented in literature, at least to my knowledge. Um, for example, in the former Soviet region, you have these kinds of places that were born after the breakup of the Soviet Union mm-hmm. in 1991. Uh, for example, Abkhazia has broken away from Georgia, Transnistria that broke away from Moldova. Um, so people living in these de facto states have passports that they can't travel with. They can't make bank transfers or study abroad. And that makes moving to a foreign country even more difficult. And that's something that I wanted to explore in in my book. So you did have some specific places in mind, but um, I'm curious when you were when you were drafting these stories, did you at one point think maybe I'll I'll name the place and then later decide to leave it uh, stateless, or did you know from the beginning that you wanted to kind of leave it a bit of a mystery and an unknown for the reader? Um, I think from quite the beginning, I knew that uh, it somehow didn't feel right to name the place. And I think I had a certain kind of landscape in mind, something that is not very far from the places I visited in Romania. But then I've heard quite a lot of stories about Moldova, Transnistria, and so on. But because that's not uh, my country and it's not my, I feel like I don't, I, I didn't have the right to, to name that place. Well, I think what happens is it lends a kind of uh, universal experience for um, anyone living in these places, particularly uh, athletes who, uh, as we know, during sports competitions, they have to take uh, a flag, they have to take a country at some point, someone has to claim them. And that does happen to the girls in the story, eventually a visa comes through and they compete for a particular country. We don't know which which one, but so I love the universal connection here between what we know has uh, been the experience of Olympic athletes. My guest is 
Christina Sandu. She's joining me from Helsinki, Finland to discuss her new book, The Union of Synchronized Swimmers. What we don't always know when an athlete or an individual defects from um, their homeland, we don't know what happens in their lives after that event. We have the glamour, for example, of the Olympics, um, and then the Olympics will end, and this athlete is in a new country speaking a new language, and we don't know what their lives are like. And what you've done in this book is imagined that next phase. We get into these new locations with the women, um, and some of them are Helsinki, uh, California, a Caribbean island, and Rome. and common for all of them are this struggle and fear of being in a new country. But I'd love to know how, when you were thinking about where to place the characters, how did you come up with these locations? Or do you have a, a particular connection to these places? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, to me, it felt natural to choose countries and cities that I've lived in and where I have family. So, for example, San Luis Obispo, California, that comes up in one of the stories, is the place where my uncle, who moved from Romania to the U.S., has gone on these fishing trips and he he's t- told me a lot of stories about, about those trips. Um, and a cousin of mine traveled from Romania to the Caribbean island, this St. Martin, and she had quite an adventure there that I made into a story. And I've lived myself in Rome for a while and I also spent several years in France. So I basically chose places that I know and I think it would be really hard to just randomly choose a country I've never been to and create a whole um, imaginary life there. I learned that you speak six languages, which is um, incredible. Um, and one thing that comes through in this in this book is that the concept of learning a language and adapting to surroundings is uh, such a struggle. And you really be- begin to see the world differently as you're learning a new language. And there's this wonderful passage that you have in the book, and I'm going to read it. There's nothing that I can't say in both languages, she thinks, and grabs the handles of the car. Nothing stays inside one language. Each thought, like the one of how she will eventually grow numb to the noise and smell of the warehouse, begets its double. Can you share with us something about that passage and uh, your observations on language, both as it relates to you in your life and and maybe in your writing? Hmm. Yes. um, Maybe because I grew up in a bilingual family, languages and learning languages has always fascinated me. Um, At some point, I lived in Rome for a while, like I, I mentioned earlier, and I remember the moment I caught myself thinking in Italian and see, seeing things in Italian. And all of, a, all of a sudden, the language had no more mystery for me. Mm. So when I was writing this book and constructing um, Nina's character, the one you cited, I thought a lot about my own experience in Rome. And of course, Nina's situation is much more difficult than mine, as she has to learn Italian to work and to survive in a new country, whereas I was there as a student, which is quite a pleasant experience. But, but so as I, I was writing her character, I thought of how when you move to a new country, language is first like a wall between you and reality, a kind of a filter, and you don't have direct ac- access to things around you, objects, people, conversations. But then when you start mastering the language, the filter disappears. 
But what I find interesting in, or what I found interesting in my own experience is that the two languages don't melt into the same reality. It's more that each language kind of expands it. Hmm. And this is because of morphology, structure, cultural associations that are different in each language. Um, in Finnish, for example, there are no genders, articles, prepositions, unlike in a Romance language, such as Italian. So these languages construct the world differently. And this is something I thought about a lot when when I was trying to imagine Nina's experience. Uh, I love that um, idea of access to a new culture as you're learning the language. In another, in another sense, in your story, what I felt came through really beautiful, beautifully is that through sport, one can gain access to the world where others might not. And there's a, a lovely image about the training facilities that the the young women in the story can see from across the river. And by the way, they're, they're, they originally train uh, for synchronized swimming competitions in a river, and then they sort of graduate into a formal sporting facility. It's, and as you write, it stands uh, in stark contrast to the humble surroundings. They're really modern and sophisticated buildings. What did you learn about the sort of history of sporting culture in these countries when you were researching this book? Well, maybe the main thing is that um, in communist countries, sports were something worth investing in because they were used to show the regime and the regime's ideology in a positive light. So leaders used sports to show their political dominance. So in Ceausescu's Romania, there was a famous gymnast called Nadia Comaneci, who mm-hmm. won, yes. um, you, yeah, I've probably heard about her. Who, Absolutely. Yeah, so she won many gold, gold medals abroad and became an international star. And people were really fascinated with her. But back home, she was, according to her own later account, miserable and training until exhaustion and being constantly surveyed. And East Germany is, is quite famous for this as well or pushing its athletes to the extreme. I, I read about how some athletes were even given steroids, so-called vitamins, to perform better. And well, this has been quite a lot in the news as well. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's something that has been talked about more openly now, but back then it was this secret way that even the athletes themselves didn't know what they were, they were taking. And in addition to surveying these athletes at home and while competing abroad, the the Stasi, the secret police, continued to spy on many of them in exile and threatened relatives back home. Of course, sports and politics have always gone hand in hand, but in those times, sports were, I guess, even more obviously a political tool. For example, in 1984, Soviet Union ordered its athletes not to go and participate in the Olympics because they were held in Los Angeles. And this was a reaction to the decision of the United States to boycott the Olympic Games four years before that were held in Moscow because um, because of Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan. So sporting culture is quite an, I think, impressive and cruel reflection of the political conflicts that were going on during the Cold War. Beautifully stated. And I think it's impossible not to think of the Romanian 
gymnast machine. Uh, everyone has been fascinated by the history of the Romanian uh, gymnast culture. And while that's not specifically addressed in the book, what I love about the timing of this release is now I'm starting to think about those excruciating uh, training regimes and what it takes in terms of sacrifice. And um, as you said, some manipulation of uh, body, mind, and spirit to uh, achieve some kind of international greatness. But I want to take a a little detour here. And there's something else that really I found um, fascinating about your book. Um, We learn early in the story that this the swimmers, the young synchronized swimmers work in a cigarette factory and they produce a brand of cigarettes called Cheap Whites. And, you know, I loved the fact that they worked in a cigarette factory and were using cigarettes to to purchase swimwear because you have scenes where the girls are attempting to master breath control, holding positions underwater for long periods of time. So you have this juxtaposition between strengthening the lungs with uh, swimming exercises and their progress is fueled by a product that's really harmful to lungs. So can you talk about why you decided to use cigarettes and and how you put those two images together? I just think it's brilliant. Um, Thank you. I like what you say about this um, because it's something or this juxtaposition is something that I hadn't really thought about. I I think I simply like the idea of contrasting the boring, repetitive manual labor in the cigarette factory with what the girls do in water, Ah. which is um, something so complicated and beautiful and creative and and has a clear purpose. Mm, But I also, now that I think about it, I did like the idea of, um, as I was writing, of those shiny white cigarettes, the cheap whites, (laughs) as um, representing something that goes outside that travels outside this this country, and you know, oh, yeah. yeah, and in a way, um, they also represent power. Um, they are both sold abroad and can be used to buy things in inside this country. Like you said earlier, the girls would buy equipment they need and so on. And so, I quite like the idea that the girls would smoke more and more, and until they finally leave to. Um, and, right. So uh, the cigarettes were ki- were a kind of currency where yeah. a formal currency actually didn't exist. Yeah. I mean, um, I guess maybe more like a currency used in addition to the, the normal currency because mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. these kind of de facto states like Transnistria, uh, they at least they use, used to be in the past kind of havens for smuggling and and any kind of illegal trade because there are no international laws controlling that. And actually, Transnistria did used to have, and I'm not sure if it still has, uh, its own cigarette brand, and they would produce their own cigarettes, and those were would sell a lot in the, the neighboring countries. I guess also because they were uh, cheaper than, than the other cigarettes. And yeah, so it also, this idea partly came from the research I did on, on this. I, I- and you've mentioned Transnistria a few times in this discussion. Um, just to uh, zero in on where that is, that's is that this is a region that is sort of between Romania and Moldova. Actually, it's a it's a small strip of land between uh, Moldova and Ukraine, and ah. yeah, and it's uh, but very very close. Um, it's 
uh, officially part of the Moldovan territory, but at the beginning of the 90s, I think it was in 92, the pro-Russian separatists of Transnistria claimed the country independent. So it's a country that has its own currency and its own um, football league and, and all this, but it's not seen as a country internationally. Right. And um, this is a strip of land. This makes is making sense to me now because you have some, um, you have inserted some Russian vocabulary and that it would be a commonly spoken language in Transnistria. Yeah, it's actually, I think most Transnistrians speak Russian. Then you also have Ukrainian, Romanian, but uh, the biggest, uh, the majority of the population speaks Russian, yes. What I also um, realized is that most of the scenes connect to water. What is your connection to water? Well, I, I grew up by the sea in Helsinki. And in summers, I would uh, usually go to, to Romania by the Black Sea and the Danube. And when it comes to the Danube, I remember being struck by anecdotes about people who es- escaped Ceausescu's regime by crossing mm. this river. And I think that as a writer, what's really interesting to me and what has stayed with me from, from these anecdotes is that water is the aspect of water as a border between countries. Mm. And when doing research about Olympic defectors, I read about somebody called Axel Mittbauer, a swimmer who swam from East Germany to West Germany in 1969. So these were some 25 kilometers that he swam apparently navigating by the stars. And so when I started to write my book about these women, I knew that I wanted their sports to be somehow related to water. And synchronized swimming seemed to lend itself perfectly to poetry, to poetic images. Hmm. That's marvelous. It really is. My guest today is author Christina Sandu. Her new book is titled The Union of Synchronized Swimmers. It will be released in English in the United States this summer, beautifully timed with the Olympics as we think about synchronized swimming and some sports that we only see once every four years. One thing that we don't always consider is what happens to the athlete who chooses to defect from their homeland, and what happens to the families that are left behind. And one of the final stories, we meet Lydia, and she returns. And we see a sort of sense of, you know, a warm embrace by some of the villagers and a cold rejection. Uh, I'd love to know what informed your views on the families and friends who are kind of left behind, those who perhaps don't have a chance to leave a place? Mm, um, Well, there's one anecdote uh, of Olympic defectors that quite touched me when I was doing research. It's about um, a cyclist from East Germany, Jürgen Kisner. I'm not sure if I pronounced that name correctly, but he sneaked out of a hotel in Colonia in the 1964 Olympics, and his mother, who was still in East Germany, was deployed by Stasi to go to Colonia to lure her son back to East Germany. But she managed to tell her son in secret to stay away from East Germany, whatever Mm. happens. And so she returned home alone. And I think this is a very concrete and brutal example of what could happen to a relative who's left behind. Mm, But when when writing this book, I, I think I didn't, approach this 
question so much from the defecting athlete's point of view, uh, maybe in a more general way. And what I've seen and heard from people who've left their country, like my Romanian family members and more distant relatives, what struck me is that after moving to a new country, one can never go back to what was before, even if the people and houses and streets would still be there in a place that one might think of as home. Um, one has become an outsider, at least to some extent, both because of how you feel yourself, but also in the eyes of those who stay behind. And I think there's something quite um, tragic about that. Christina, well, I still have you. Um... You are our first guest from Finland on the program. And sometimes I love to ask guests about a book or, you know, a work of fiction or nonfiction, either, either one, that we may not have heard of or that you may feel deserves a wider readership. Yes, of course, there's some, some great contemporary Finnish writers. For example, Rosa Lixon. She has written a novel called Compartment, Compartment Number Six, and it's actually Number Six. Yes, and this is actually published uh, by Crave Wolf Press. I think that's a U.S. Mm-hmm. It is publishing house uh, in 2016. So it's available in English, and this is an amazing novel that takes place in the Trans-Siberian train on its way to Mongolia a bit mm. before the collapse of the Soviet Union. And it's about two people who travel for days in the same compartment, a young Finnish woman and a middle-aged Russian man who's a former soldier. And this weird encounter enfolds into a beautiful and original connection. Yeah, that's that's a wonderful suggestion. I will link that in our profile of you on uh, the website so everybody can find that book with ease. Oh, that's great. and I hadn't planned to ask you this, but now we're entering summer and um, I assume it's becoming warm and beautiful in Finland. What do uh, the Finnish love to do in the summertime? Is there anything that you all particularly look forward to? Um, well, Finns are very big on summer cottage. So the ideal situation is that you have a small cottage somewhere by the lake and you can just isolate yourself there and the neighbors aren't anywhere to be seen and there's just sauna and swimming and uh, walking in the forest. So I think that that's the number one summer activity here. That sounds like the digital detox that we all need right now. That uh, that should inspire us all to escape into nature as we move into summer properly. Well, Christina, I can't thank you enough for joining Real Fiction today. It has been a delight discussing your new book. And I want to remind listeners, my guest is Christina Sandu. She has joined us today from Helsinki, Finland to discuss her new book, The Union of Synchronized Swimmers. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. been listening to Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. 
Real Fiction airs Wednesdays at noon on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia, and on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. All Real Fiction episodes are archived on realfictionradio.com. Thanks for listening.